0: is What Shall We Do About? with Sam Robinson. Hello and welcome to What Shall We Do About? the show that tries to improve the world's less pressing problems. When iTunes was first launched in the early 2000s, it made us all DJs. We could program a playlist, export it to CD and voila, our own party soundtrack. So because of this, I've always been baffled by actual DJs. They look awkward on stage as they warm up the crowd while people in the crowd look at the DJ thinking they could do a better job. But in the last few months, as the world has shut down due to COVID-19, I've been thinking more about the plight of the DJ. Joke, we might, but they're out of work. So, what shall we do about DJs? Joining me to discuss is one of Australia's best and most enduring DJs, Andrew Levins. He's been making mixes for years, but he's also a keen author, with his first kids' book having just hit bookstores. Levin, so good to have you on the pod, mate. Hey, likewise. Uh, It's it's happy to,
1: I'm not with you right now, We're, we're miles away from each other, but I feel like I'm in the same room.
0: Well, it, we're keeping our distance. We're recording this in a COVID-19 world, my friend, which I will get. I want to get to you because I know it's affected your work in a big way oh, as yeah. a DJ. What work? What work? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, anyway, uh, let, first things first, you have been a DJ for a long time, right, since you're a teenager? Yeah, that's right, since about 2003,
1: I think it was my first gig. But we're talking, uh, we used to DJ uh, using belt drive turntables like so so record players that i guess were abandoned by um people who bought them in the 70s and 80s we'd find them on the side of the road and then set them up um at our friends house parties and dj using like a a a band mixer uh, how do you find them
0: on the side of a road who's who's put them on the side of the road
1: man so we, we grew up in like yeah like a hornsby area and we would spend saturday nights especially like before council cleanups you we, we would find we could put it together entire stereo systems, and it, right. they, if we would just throw out completely fine working condition turntables, um, and uh, yeah, we would we basically we almost had like a business going where like we would find them, find them like fix them up and then sell them to our friends.
0: Yeah, that's great to turn those things around.
1: Yeah, but they're shocking the DJ off, but still it was a, a fun fun way to start. We, we we lived in this near this amazing record store called Discovery Records in Hornsby, and. Um, They just had the most insane selection of just, I mean, we were, you know, we were kids who who loved like psychedelic rock and that kind of thing in the, in the nineties. But then they also had lots of different, basically so many different genres and um, everything available on vinyl. So yeah, that was, even though I don't play vinyl now, that's my, that's how I got started.
0: That's very cool. So um, that's how you got started. And then you, you've done a lot of DJ work over the years and worked with some pretty big artists as well. How did you, how did you break through?
1: Uh, I think it was just persistence, being in the right place, at the right time, um, being a, a very, very friendly, outgoing person. Uh, I think the people, when when you are an up and coming DJ, you just got to be as nice as possible. I loved being out in clubs. So club owners knew me, other DJs knew me. It's just like an eager beaver who uh, who had pretty good taste in music. And um, I was given a, a lot of chances, uh, even when I was truly terrible at DJing, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think, yeah, I, I, people they kind of take all the DJs would take you under your wing, under their wing and say, like, "Oh, you know, don't play the biggest song of the night at eight thirty and you know when 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 the club has three people in it uh, and and you know pace yourself, and I got getting lots of great tips like that. And um then it was kind of there was a opportunity to to play music that other people weren't playing. And so then, when those artists started touring, they would get me to open for them because no one else played that style of music.
0: That's so cool. It's amazing to think how times have changed as well. Like, for something that, that used to be so physical, I'm guessing now is less so?
1: Oh, absolutely. My, my, my music collection for DJing is entirely digital. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a record collection of my favourite albums of all time and, you know, a few rare singles and seven inches and things like that that I'll never get rid of, but I don't ever use them for DJing anymore.
0: Now, I remember... Um, I remember a conversation I had with my cousin when Daft Punk to it. It was a number of years ago now. Um, hey, you want to know
1: something crazy? I played that show. What? Yeah. Um, I used to DJ um, as, uh, my old DJ name was stupid, was Slater Brockman, which was an, an, a name I invented uh, because I, were, like, I, I was like a, like a hilarious European sounding tennis player name. Yeah. Uh, and so for, for like five years, I DJed as Slater Brockman. And all these American DJs would come out and, I'd I'd open for them and then we'd hang out like and I just kind of became known as like the guy you hang out with in when you're in Australia uh, and and everyone just knew me as Levens but then they would be like oh cool and they'd put Levens on the poster I'm like oh my DJ name's actually Slater Brockman and then one DJ uh, this guy Paul Devereaux from America was from Canada sorry he was like dude you have to change it no one knows you as Slater Brockman everyone knows you as Levens <laughs> and so so I just started DJing as my last name instead.
0: And how did you get Um, in touch with? Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot that I was talking about (laughs) Daft Punk.
1: So I used to work. (laughs) I used to work for Modular Records, um, and uh, uh, Modular Records, uh, guess most famous for releasing like you know Tame Impala, The Avalanche's Cut Copy, um, and the presets. Mm. But they also were the ones behind the Daft Punk tour of of Australia, and um, I started the DJ agency for modular records and they gave me a side stage at the Daft Punk show. It was Sydney only. And I just basically booked the entire roster of the agency. And of course I was on the roster as well. So I played the, uh, the Daft Punk show. That's cool. Did you get to meet them? Yeah, there was an after party. I did, I did a lot of shows on that tour. Um, just working at them. Um, but, uh, there was a, an after party that Daft Punk were at and it was on a boat. Um, and, uh, uh, they were walking around without their helmets on, and uh, everyone was banned from taking photos.
0: <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. Uh, keep up the mystery. But um, that's cool. You've been on a boat with Daft Punk unmasked. Yeah, but I stole one of their bottles of tequila. Did so, you? Don't tell them. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> At the gig on the boat?
0: On the boat. Oh and then I got wow! In trouble.
1: I got in trouble. I got in trouble for it because everyone saw me do it.
0: <laughs> oh really? You didn't get? You didn't yeah. have to walk the plank or anything like that. No, no,
1: like like luckily, as I mentioned earlier, pretty nice guys. So everyone was just kind of like, well, happens.
0: <laughs> it's a story you can tell your grandkids one day.
1: Um, yeah, actually, I'm telling my kids. My my, my my son's favorite album is Discovery by Daft Punk. Uh, he 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 talks about it with his friends as if like it's it's something that everyone knows, and they're like, what are you talking about?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was mentioning Daft Punk, and when they toured, right, and the fact that I was talking to my cousin, and he made a, a just this is offhand quip that. You know, Daft Punk get up on stage in front of thousands of people, plug in an iPod, and just dance for two hours. As a DJ, do you ever feel like that's the perception of what you do on stage?
1: Look, I play a lot of different
0: gigs. When I when I DJ a party, I don't think anyone would ever accuse me of
1: that. But if I'm opening for a live act, especially a live act that has a lot of um, younger um, audience pool, I'll I'll get a lot of people on Twitter, on Instagram kind of putting up a photo of me just being like, what is this guy doing playing a playlist? <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of people don't really understand. A lot of times a lot of younger people don't really understand what DJing is and and, and and how how involved it is. But like if I'm ever booked to play a, like a private party or a wedding or a festival um, or, you know, a night a nightclub, I think people are more in the know there and can see what I'm doing as I do it. And, you know, you can see how off the cuff on the fly it is.
0: Do you ever feel awkward on stage? Like, you know, as a, maybe as a support for a, for a band, you're doing the DJ set at the start of night and everyone's kind of milling in, looking at you on stage. I, I'd feel really self-conscious if I was that person.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like I've been doing it for so long, nothing makes me more self-conscious than being like the one dude on the, in the middle of this enormous stage and uh, the crowd being maybe on the quieter quieter side of, you know, like, you know, when the night's starting out, yeah. you're just awkwardly standing up there, um, you know, waiting for it to get less awkward. <laughs> Sometimes it never does.
0: Do, do you think, like, what what would you say is the ultimate gig for a DJ? Is it playing Coachella? Is it um, another music festival? Is it just having a, a full room in your own city? What What is it for you?
1: I mean, there's a few different ones. For me, it's just being able to play whatever I want. Having a lot of people that I know, at a, at, a, at a club or a festival um, that kind of know the music that 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 I enjoy and being able to play like maybe some deeper selections from the past that really appeals to a certain type of crowd. I want to be able to basically read the crowd, know exactly what to play and be able to throw some curveballs at them and really make it a fun and exciting night. I get to do that pretty frequently. I play Falls Festival in Byron Bay at the end of each year. A couple of years ago, because it's the same uh, festival site as Splendour in the Grass, which is a winter festival, they use that same site for Falls Festival um, over New Year's Eve. It's like four days over New Year's. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's significantly hotter. It's like 40 degrees um, over New Year's. And so they have this beautiful natural amphitheater as the main stage but that has no shade um, at all. And so bands were playing in the daytime on this stage and just cooking, you know, and yeah. no one was watching. No one was watching them because they'd just get roasted. Uh, so the next year they were like, okay, we need to address this problem really quickly. Um, and so last minute they erected a big top stage and they had the main acts play inside the big top um, during the day, and then as soon as it hit five pm, they would move them over to them back to the amphitheater. But then they had this big empty big top, and so the guy who runs uh, Falls Festival called me and said look someone's recommended you as someone that can put together a last minute lineup of DJs to play the big top here's the budget it wasn't much uh, cause when you when you have to factor in you know flying and accommodating 5 to 10 DJs that oh. money goes away pretty quick and so i said well, why don't i i just do the whole thing by myself and he was like are you serious like and thought it was hilarious that i would even suggest that one DJ play for probably 24 hours over the course of a weekend. I guess 26 hours is the full length of time. Uh, and I was like, no, I'm serious. I, I, I love doing long sets. And I think it would be great because it would ensure that, you know, the same songs wouldn't get played every hour. Because when you have a changeover of, of DJs trying to play to the same crowd, that, that happens. And he was like, okay. And he convinced everyone else. And that was three Year's Eve's ago and it went really well. And he locked me in for the rest of my life. doing that slot so now every every new year's eve i I, um rent a house in byron bay my family my my kids my wife my sisters and my parents all come up and we have 10 10 days in byron bay and i'm just gone for the middle four of them um i get to and i get to play some of the funnest sets of my life because you're playing to like a festival crowd of you know five to eight thousand people and uh one year actually dizzy rascal the um the british rapper Mm. He was headlining New Year's Eve uh, two years ago and um, he got a throat infection. And so he had to cancel. And so half an hour before he was due to come on, the uh, festival organizer ran and asked, hey, can you fill in for Dizzy Rascal at 11 p.m. on New Year's Eve on the on the main stage in this wow. massive amphitheater? And I was like, OK, all right, let's do this. And uh, it was the best set I've ever done in my life, I think. It was all the most certainly the most fun. And the crowd were disappointed. Now- they were with you? I mean, some certainly were, um, I think people, I mean, I, I, I'm not the uh, most typically cool looking person. Like, <laughs> I, I look like a daggy white dad, you know, but I think um, uh, musically, I, I definitely am able to kind of, you know, know exactly what a massive crowd wants to hear and um, I can change up, you know, and play a few fun remixes and throwbacks. So it's not just someone playing these big pop songs one after the other. But uh, the, I think it was like 25 to 30,000 people I played to that night. And you know, I probably got three negative comments online about it afterwards. Yeah. Um, that, that, if you look up uh, DJ Levin's Meredith Festival, it's a completely different story. I, I played I played Meredith Music Festival in, uh, in 2015, and that's like a 10,000 capacity crowd. And um, it's a very like, you know, elder statesman kind of, you know, there's a lot of people that that think that, that you know, elitist music, uh, musical views, not as much as, as there were a few years ago now, but um, I played, it was just after um, Sorry by Justin Bieber came out. Yeah. And um, that song's like a, to me, is like a dancehall song with with a, with a pop vocal over the top. Um, so I play a lot of Jamaican music in my sets and um, uh, I mixed it in. And um, it it got a few boos from the crowd, but for the most part, everyone seemed to love it. But there was a massive backlash about it afterwards. And it was like this hilarious talking point where where instead of anyone talking about any of the bands that played that festival, everyone was just either complaining or laughing about the fact that I played a Justin Bieber song at at the Hallowed Halls of Meredith Music Festival.
0: (laughs) That's so good. All right, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because I'm intrigued. I wonder a few things about DJing. Levens, first one. Is there a secret rivalry between club DJs and wedding DJs?
1: Uh, I mean, I think I think every club DJ secretly wants to be asked to play a wedding de- <laughs> wedding set because the money is so much better. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they're pretty. They're pretty. They can be pretty rough. Um, I've 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 played some absolutely brilliant weddings. Um, I've I've probably played over a hundred, um, but some of them have been some of the worst gigs I've ever played in my life. Yeah. Okay. Um, just because you have maybe a crowd, whenever you're whenever you're playing to a crowd of people that don't really know what DJs are or do, um where people think they can just tell you what to play instead of ask you nicely, you know, or maybe the the bride and groom haven't communicated very well exactly what music they would like me to play in spite of me asking repeatedly for the weeks leading up to their wedding. And suddenly I'm, I'm playing music that that would normally be fine for any wedding in the world, but it's happens to be their least favorite kind of music. there there've be moments like that that have made me hate wedding DJs, but I don't know if there's a rival anymore. I think times have changed a lot in the last few years. I mean, the Sydney club scene is just keeps getting hit by really, really tough situations, and it's it's a, it's surprising that there's any nightclubs left in Sydney now, and I don't know if there will be after um, the end of this uh, coronavirus crisis. But, well, let's, um...
0: let's talk about coronavirus and COVID-19, and obviously you can't play gigs now as we record this, um, and there's no real end date to this. Um, how has it affected you, and what do you think is going to come of the, the club and the DJ scene and even the live music scene? On the other side of this well i mean okay from a club point of view i mean and
1: like at the, at the moment the issue is it's one on one hand yeah I've, I've lost all my future work but on the other hand i also might not get paid for the last month to two months because now all the clubs are going i've realized they're not making any money you know even 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 these these big massive hmm. long time venues that are owned by enormous uh, pub groups they're not making any money either, so a lot of them are locking down their assets. I will also have to go into.
0: Um... So hang on, you are saying that you're not going to get paid for the last two months of work? It's it's entirely possible. I'm I'm there's a lot of uh, uh, clubs be, that aren't writing back to me now. That'd be terrible. Um, and
1: yeah, so I, I'm I'm in a really really awful situation where like you know without disclosing too much of my financial situation, let's say I make five thousand dollars a month from DJing. Yeah. I've lost the next the next six months, and I won't get paid for the last two months. Yeah, um, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's 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 pretty stressful. Um, um, luckily, I, you know, as, as as you said at the top of the podcast, you know, I, I do do a lot of other things, so hopefully, I'll be able to get more writing work and things like that sorted to kind of fill this void. But my my big worry is that when when the crisis is over, like the damage will have been done to to an already extremely damaged club scene. Like you know, the lockout laws in Sydney completely destroyed. So many of my favorite venues, and and some of them are operating at a fraction of the the profit they used to. Um, so I don't I don't know if there will be a club scene to return to when this is over.
0: Yeah. Do you, Do you feel like, as people become these kind of hermits, self enclosed, uh, you know, antisocial? I don't know. Do you think that that will mean that they won't won't be as willing to come out at the end of that and get back into well, the club? I mean, I, we've had
1: years of that because you the lockout laws, and obviously, you know, the incidences that brought the, those laws yes, in, yes. Um, they and 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 the way the media kind of heightened them and um it was just this just this awful, awful situation to be a part of. But that scared off generations of young people from from viewing clubbing as a um as a you know an, an acceptable form of entertainment for them. And so you, we already had a massive rise in, in, in young people not going out and staying at home and, you know, playing Fortnite instead of going and checking out a nightclub, saving all their money and, and then just going crazy at music festivals instead. So, I mean, I feel like we, were, we were, the, the tables were starting to turn. Obviously, the lockout laws got repealed um, at the beginning of the year. Mm. And I was starting to see far more young people in, in nightclubs um, and it feeling like a bit bit kind of rejuvenated. But um, yeah, man, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen now.
0: So how are you feeling through all of this? Because I know that you got a you got a wife and you got kids that you're supporting. the 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 kids are now at home. Doing yeah, yeah, online learning, homeschooling
1: them. If you are if you wanted, I've been posting my uh, my lesson plans on my Instagram. If anyone needs any help,
0: I've seen that. Uh, That's my,
1: wonderful. My, my wife is a primary school teacher, so she's 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 sent me a few activities, and then I just kind of make them a bit more fun seeming. But we're still learning, you know. We 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 play a lot, of, a lot of board games and go out and have like a
0: an excursion down to the creek and then write about all the nouns and adjectives we saw <laughs> yeah right so how how are you feeling about uh, you know this situation the uncertainty of what's going on
1: uh look i'm an optimist um but it's it's hard to i'm also pretty realistic when it comes to these kind of situations at the moment i'm just focusing on like you know staying inside and and uh and trying not to think about the future too much mm. um but uh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty concerned about what's going to happen. I mean, I know a lot the festival um scene is going to get is, is has been hit quite hard. There's a um uh, an initiative where people register how much work they've lost in the entertainment industry from DJs and performers through to lighting and tech crew and and even promoters, and it's in the billions now, I think. So yeah. it's 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 a pretty significant amount of money lost from a from an industry that uh that was already suffering um with downturn and things like that. So you know, and also like you know, an industry that that really came together at the start of this year and and raised an insane amount of money for for the bushfire support. So it's now bushfire relief, sorry. So to now, you know, I've have, have spent you know almost all of January doing doing charity gigs that we didn't see profit from. To now, like oh, and then I won't really get paid for the work I did in February or March, and now there won't be any gigs for the rest of the year. So yeah. it's, a, it's a, weird, a weird space to be in.
0: You have got a way that you're hoping to uh, keep making music this year and, and the way people can support you. Do you want to talk about that, your Patreon?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, look, this exists in one part to kind of recover any, you know, not even recover, because like, no matter how many people sign up, it won't, uh, won't be anywhere near as much as I was making from actually working. But uh, I've started a Patreon, um, a mixtape service, Um, where people opt in for a small monthly subscription fee and every month they get sent. Well, it was originally one month, but then enough people signed up that that I hit the first goal. And so now it's going to be two mixes a month. Mm. Um, So $5 um, a month gets you two mixes from me. Um, They're going to be across all kinds of genres. At the moment, there's a a really fun kind of like global club mix, which has uh, music from Africa and and Jamaica and and there's some reggaeton on there and uh, hip hop from... America and the UK yeah. You know, on one hand it is to kind of like have a little bit of income coming through on the music side but on the other it's just so I just stay musically active and um, always staying atop of what music is, is coming out and making you know fun mixes discovering new genres and, and sharing that with people it's my favorite part of DJing um, and so that's all available at patreon.com slash levdog l-e-v-d-i-w-g um and yeah there's there's the new mixes and then there's also a tier where if you sign up it's ten dollars a month you can just sign up once and download everything and then uh and then go back down to the five tier five dollars tier, if you want but every single mix i've ever made is up there as well if uh, anyone needs about i think it's up to like 30 hours of of (laughs) of mixed music wow Uh, so that's the yeah and, and, and there's something for everyone there like i've 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 done so many different themed mixes like uh, you know obviously there's a lot of hip hop and and dance mixes but then there's things like I did a series called Cool Dad FM which is all like seventies and eighties dad rock um, which <laughs> is music that you don't often hear beat matched and mixed and, yeah uh, fl- and, but it's so fun mixing those the, the, that kind of music uh, so those those are some mixes that I'm really really proud of I made them for my dad a few years ago but they're they're very popular there's like throwback Australian rock mixes as well if you are uh, went to high school in, uh, in like the 90s and 2000s and listened to Triple J back then. I, I, I've done mixed uh, mixes of all the music that was big back then, alternative Australian hits, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there's something for everybody for sure. That's so cool.
0: You are a surprising person to me because you're a passionate DJ, but you're also passionate about food and food writing as well, which, which leads me then to talking about your brand new book and a book series for kids which is all about a kid named Nelson. Is there some sort of link, you think, between your love of DJing and your love of writing? The link is that I used to write about music, but now I write about food.
1: Okay. Uh, beyond that, beyond that, I mean, it, the, the, I, I have a habit of, of of being really, really into something and then going, well, wow, I love this thing. How can I make money off it? Yeah. And so when I loved, loved music, I was like, you know, I loved making mixtapes to people. I became a DJ. And then when I loved cooking food, I opened a restaurant. And then when I just loved sharing my love of food with people, I started writing about it and writing for for publications about it. And so now, yeah, I'm writing uh, stories about, about kids and food, I guess, because I guess that's my way of, profiting off parenting is that i'm doing now
0: yeah i guess so well i think there's something there's something about when you when you are a parent and you're reading kids books there's often that thought of like oh i've got a great idea and you make up when you make up silly stories for your kids especially right you think i can turn that into a book um let's talk about the book though nelson pumpkins and aliens is the first one what's the what's the kind of gist of the story so uh, Nelson Hunter is the main character of this book. He's in year
1: three. He hates his school, but he doesn't hate it anywhere near as much as he hates eating vegetables. Um, and his family love eating vegetables. His grandparents own a vegetable farm, and they're always sending down their, like, award-winning vegetables for Nelson's family to eat. But Nelson refuses to even have one single bite. They're his most hated thing in the world. So he uh, he's always formulating ways to get rid of the vegetables from his plate and uh, into the bin or the toilet or under his bed. Um, But one night his grandparents come over for dinner and his grandma forces him to eat a bowl of pumpkin soup. And he passes out because it's the most disgusting thing he's ever had to do in his life. But when he wakes up in the morning and he reaches for his alarm clock and hits it, it smashes into pieces. Then he accidentally rips the cupboard door off off, off off its hinges. And he realizes that pumpkins are giving him super strength. Hmm. And uh, he then learns that all vegetables give him a different superpower. And so it's a book about him embracing the things that he hates the most to, uh, you know, use his superpowers to save people that are important to him in his life.
0: That's such a cool idea.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Look,
0: I love superheroes. I love comic books.
1: And um, I wanted to kind of write a story that was, you know, my my funny heroic origin story that, that kids can enjoy.
0: And what's the target audience as far as kids are concerned? I think it's like uh, it's, uh, it's 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 was for boys between
1: six and ten. But I mean, I've actually made secretly made all of the female characters the coolest characters in the book. Like I love Nelson, but yeah. Nelson is like a hopeless lazy teenager trapped in a um, primary school aged boy's body. Um, he's just like you know he doesn't want to do anything except play video games and stay in bed. And so anyone that he hates, he doesn't really hate school because he's bad at it or he doesn't like his teacher. He just hates it. Cause it's not his bed. Whereas his best friend, Olive is like this, like ray of sunshine, um, who, who just hangs out with Nelson because she finds him so funny. And, uh, they, 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 they're, they're polar opposites, but that's why they're friends. And then, uh, they make, they they look like, uh, aliens is in the title. There are aliens in this book. And uh, the coolest alien is a princess named Rachel, and uh, of course Nelson's grandma is about us too. So uh, yeah, lots of uh, lots of great female characters in this book. So I, I definitely reckon that yeah, boys and girls would really enjoy this.
0: I have already done an episode of this podcast called "What Shall We Do About Vegetables" with Alice Zeslavsky, who was on MasterChef. Oh, and, great! And uh, she was brilliant. Um, and it, go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it yet. But I think what I was wondering when I talked to her, and she said uh, the fact that. A lot of the problem is that vegetables aren't sold as being exciting, you know, and kids don't appreciate the fact that they are delicious things. Is there a sense that what you're trying to do in these books is get kids a little bit excited about vegetables and seeing that they can actually do cool things? Well, I,
1: actually, my my kind of end goal with, with with writing this book was there for to be no moral lesson for anybody. Okay. <laughs> so, because I like for me, like the lesson that kids should learn from a book is that reading rules, and they should do more of it. Yeah. So I don't I don't need to cram other lessons down their throats, and and I don't want Nelson to be like, so you see, Nelson, you should have been eating vegetables all along. Like e- every book ends, and he's like cool vegetables help me save the day but they're still the worst things ever and i refuse to eat them but my kids both love vegetables i love vegetables so this, this isn't some weird grudge that i harbor against them I, uh, I i definitely agree that um they are so rarely presented to kids in an exciting way so i my, i do if, if this series takes off i have lots of grand ideas and one of them is a cookbook series for kids which is um uh basically like you know Fun fun recipes with vegetables, and then you have commentary from Nelson saying how disgusting each recipe is.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That would be so good. I'd love to read that. I love that for my kids too. My, my 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 favorite books growing up were Choose Your Own Adventure.
1: Books. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I want to do a, a, a Nelson Choose, but it's like C H E W S. So Choose Your Own Adventure. Um, and so it's a, you know, like if you want to eat a radish, go to page nine. If you want to eat a a lettuce, go to page 12.
0: (laughs) That is great. I'd love to see that published. And you're going to do a few of these books, right? It's a series of Nelson books.
1: Yeah. So I've written, I've written two so far. Um, Nelson book two, um, is called broccoli and spies and that's coming out. in the next year, um, it's green. This uh, current one is orange. Every book is a different color uh, that, that relates to whichever vegetable the book is about, which is pretty fun.
0: Yeah. As we finish the podcast, uh, as we always do, Andrew Levins, what shall we do about DJs? Uh,
1: I mean, maybe just try and try and employ them somehow. I don't know. <laughs> book them, book them for your uh, for your upcoming uh, live streamed office drinks. Yes, as you socially isolate. I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely like if you had to ask me a month ago, maybe I'd have many more great fun ideas about what we should do about DJs but right now, support them offer them virtual hugs
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, virtual hugs is the way to go Look, honestly, I really I'm excited about this book series and I think I mean, the timing of it's great considering you kind of, without DJ work I really want to wish you all the best Levens for, for all you're doing in the future and I just hope that, that once this COVID thing passes, that you can get back into it and, uh, and your Byron Bay gig can happen over the years and you just yeah the the, oh, the man, industry that, yeah, grows that, again
1: that, that would be such a great way to, to to signify that everything was over and we could move on you know but look at this point i don't want to be that selfish guy that wants everything to be normal so my my work comes back or whatever i realize this is a massive thing that everyone needs to take responsibility for and if that means no gigs for me for a while then so be it i can find other ways to make money i'm yeah. in mean, a lucky position like that and uh, maybe it'll mean that I'll write more more books in the Nelson series that haven't even been contracted yet. And then Penguin will be like, you know what? Ten books it is. <laughs> That'd be great. It's, it's unlikely that will happen if I have to keep homeschooling every day. though. My wife's a primary school teacher. And so she has to go to work. She'd be way better at homeschooling than me. But um, so she has to go to work. And then I'm, I'm at home with the kids by myself all
0: day. Maybe you set a lesson plan for your kids to come up with the next uh, plot lines for Nelson's adventures yeah oh
1: believe me my son Archie is uh, is all across it he's he's already um, worked out what all of the other vegetable superpowers are going to be
0: <laughs> oh that's awesome hey thanks so much for joining me on the podcast Levins thanks Dan appreciate it my thanks to Andrew Levins who you can find on Twitter and Instagram at Levdog that's L-E-V-D-A-W-G and his brand new book Nelson Pumpkins and Aliens is out now Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. As always, I do appreciate it and would love it if you could rate and review it wherever you heard this. And uh, I do hope you're doing okay considering the world state at the moment. And I'd love to hear from you if you, you know, want to give some feedback on the show at whatshallwedopod at gmail.com. And you can find this show on Instagram and Facebook at whatshallwedopod. What Shall We Do About is hosted and produced by me, Sam Robinson, with production support from Ali Barnes and original music from Chad Gardner. Stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.